Hello, and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is Tilt. Hello. And we're back to the cinema today. But a cinema with video projection facilities. Well, they, they do exist, don't they? That's they what the some. people asked for. For those of you who didn't see, we had a Twitter poll to take a decision about what exactly we were going to talk about in this show. I think there was something like maybe only one vote in it in the end. So, Morecambe and Wise's films have a very poor reputation. Uh, the story is they try to break into the world market with their films, their films were terrible, and are best forgotten about the end. And Night Train to Murder is... Night Train to Murder, it was a dreadful end to their career. What a terrible cardboard tombstone. Let us not speak of it again. We'll come back to Thames. When we come to Morecambe and Wise at the movies, it's ATV-style Morecambe and Wise. Eric is more gormless, bit of a loser. Ernie is more of a straight man. And they're also more lecherous. I watched what they call the two-of-a-kind set. I know some of them are actually just called the Mockman Y show towards the end of their time at ATV. The number of sketches was just, right, there's some girls coming to the flat. Sid and Dick are also there, and Sid and Dick and Ernie get really nice girls, and... Eric ends up without a girl or with a terrible girl. Or, you know, the the idea behind this sketch is that Janet Webb is unattractive. <laughs> and it really just oh, becomes a real grind after a while. So you mentioned Sid and Dick there. So this is it's not really by design. It's just a curiosity of the way this is all sort of fallen into place. But none of the material that we're going to be talking about today is actually written by Eddie Braben. Because Eddie Braben wrote for Morecambe and Wise from their second BBC series onwards through until the end of the BBC days and then later on. Whereas it's... I'm ringing the bell of Business Outstanding from the previous podcast. Right. Because I think it came to us when we were watching these films, we'd complained so much about help. And we said, said, what would help have been like if Eddie Braben had been involved in the writing? (laughs) Because... He's going to know his way around the Scouse sense of humour. It's going to be slightly surreal. Eddie Braben, writing for the Beatles, I think would have been a match made in heaven. (laughs) They wouldn't have had to have left that house. Imagine a flat sketch with the Beatles. It is still incredible, isn't it, to think that Eddie Braben has written... This sounds like journalese, but Eddie Braben has written for everybody from Morecambe Wise to Anton Deck. That's actually true. Ant Dick's Channel 4 series, Eddie Braben, was one of the writers of it. Amazing. That's extraordinary. ATV Edis, it's Sid Hills and Dick Green, and you will know who they are because they do appear in a lot of the sketches in this era. As Ernie Wise himself said later on, they were somewhat starstruck. Sometimes you get the feeling that Sid and Dick think that they are the third and fourth member of Morecambe and Wise. Sometimes you get the feeling that Sid and Dick think that Morkman Wise are the third and fourth member of Hills in Green. Well, this is something which has been commented upon in documentaries, is that for the first couple of years or so at ATV, Sid and Dick are really sort of, they're, they're, they're driving this train, and it's only then after they have this phenomenal success then Mark and Wise have got the clout to then be able to dictate terms and the relationship slowly changes after then. In the case of... And there the, was the strike. Yes. And watching these films, it's like the strike never happened. But I'm sure everybody knows the story, but just briefly, 
early Morgan Wise on ATV. Lots of supporting artists involved, lots of skits involving you know large casts. And there was an equity strike and Morgan Wise were in a different union, so they weren't affected by that. And so Sid and Dick had to write Morgan Wise for Morgan Wise alone, themselves. And that's what established the format. Whereas in these films, you get the impression that everybody's back. You know, it's like all those actors who would have been in the show in 1961, they've all suddenly turned up in the films and Smoke and Wise are sort of like bit part players in their own productions. So these are three films that are made for the rank organisation between 1965 and 1967. And they're all colour films. And it's fair to say that Ernie was somewhat more intent on cracking the big screen and seeing that as his route to Hollywood than Eric was. Yes, there was definitely an intention to make Morgan Wise international stars. I can't remember how many times they were on the Ed Sullivan show. And I think these films also fall into a bit of an easy narrative, though, because this is the Try to Break America couldn't. It's not so much they couldn't, it's not necessarily a matter of the material, because if they were that impenetrable to the American audience, Sullivan would not have asked them back. He really liked them. He was pushing them. But to break America, you have to spend a lot of time there, and I don't think Eric was into that idea. They would have had to have lived there for nine months, a year, maybe out of a couple of years, I think, to really do something like that. I don't have the, the quotation in front of me right now, but I know it's in the second autobiography. Because Ernie saw himself as Britain's Mickey Rooney. That, that was the guy that he really sort of you know, idolised and patterned himself on. And at one point... Ernie said, as far as I'm concerned, and bear, bear, bear in mind, this is 1981 we're talking about, so the, you know, they've been together for 40 years by this point. Ernie says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm still on my way to Hollywood. And Eric says, but to do what? And Ernie says, I don't know. <laughs> and the, I think that there's, there's, there's something in that, is that Ernie seems to absolutely come alive in those Ernest Maxson-produced shows when they're doing the huge set-piece song and dance routines, especially Singing in the Rain being the obvious one. These films, let's face it, this could be anybody. It's a waste of Mark and Wise, these films. And they do their best with them, but might as well give them to Mike and Bernie or give them to Lenny and Jerry or whoever you're going to give them to because they're not Mark and Wise films. They're not utilising them properly. For the most part, yes. But in one part, no. I think... The Intelligence Men is a good film and a good Mockman Wise film. Not great, unfortunately. I think one of the reasons it's just lumped in with the other two movies is because of what they became, that maybe expectations were too high. But I think The Intelligence Men is at least a good case scenario for Mockman Wise going into a film. They're in it a lot. Of course, it's written around a lot of their standard routines. Get out of that. And, of course, it's based around a musical motif, so there's a whole thing of trying to teach Eric a song, or in this case, trying to get Eric to remember a song, and he keeps getting it wrong. What other bits are in there? I'm sure there are at least three things that they do at least once a series on ATV. And maybe that's part of its problem. It's used up a lot of Hills and Green Mockman Wise. So you didn't like The Intelligence Men? Intelligence Man was okay. I mean, as far as the three films are concerned, I think that that was by a mile. I thought it was the best of the, the three. 
I was actually under a bit of a misapprehension when it came to these because shock horror, dreadful revelation. I've never actually seen these films before I watched them for this podcast. And the reason I've never seen them is because I wasn't going by the reviews. It wasn't so much that all oh, people are saying that they're lousy and what have you. Because let's face it, who's got a good word to say about Carry On Emmanuel? It's on my <laughs> shelf, for goodness sake. No, not part of the box set. It's on my shelf by itself. Because I bought it by itself. I don't know really why I'm admitting to that. But anyway, so the IMDb reviews are never you know, going to dictate my purchases. But I remember saying to yourself before we started this, how dreadfully dull I find ITC shows of the 60s. And particularly because there is something about the selection of supposedly glamorous locations, and I think this is probably going to be a Lou Grade thing. I think he's thinking, you know, the more glamorous the location, you know, it's going to play well, you know, to people watching in in the middle of January uh, back home and what have you. And also it'll sell well. And yeah, I can sort of understand that. But to me now, those films look so dated and also strangely drab, strangely colourless. That's what I associate with these films. Now, I was pleasantly surprised to find out the intelligence men's actually entirely set in the UK. So there wasn't really any of that sort of location business going on. I was quite enjoying watching the, the shots of London in 1965. So it had that going for it for a start. I think a lot of films could be improved by having cutaway reactions of Francis Matthews and Terence Alexander and William Franklin. By and large, doesn't deviate too much. I notice that this is the one that's written by Sid and Dick themselves without any input from anybody else. And it went by quick enough. It makes one of the mistakes that the other two films make, which is stock plot. But it covers it up really well because Morecambe and Wise are in nearly every scene. And a significant number of the scenes are written in such a way as an excuse for Morecambe and Wise to do what Morecambe and Wise do well. So Ernie, playing Ernie Sage, get it, is a T-boy at MI5. And Eric somehow crossed paths with an agent for a enemy power called Schlecht. So that's an excuse for Eric and Ernie to get involved in spy stuff. That's a good description of it, spy stuff. Yeah, I like that. But one way it helps is, so the three main guys at MI5 taking the decisions, as Gary mentioned, Francis Matthews, William Franklin, Terence Alexander. So you have three straight men. It should be too crowded, but somehow it isn't. But there, we have a thing. So Eric and Ernie are both silly in this as well. A little bit of a projection into future Morquan Wise. So I think Ernie was getting sillier as they went on on ATV. And you even have a bit where they just do a dance routine for no readily apparent reason. But it doesn't matter. It's Morquan Wise doing a dance routine. Morquan Wise doing what Morquan Wise are good at. Hooray! We're into that scheme where you have guests, but the guests just stand mouths agape at how stupid Morecambe and Wise are. I think Francis Matthews, was he in Running Wild? Was he in one of those? I know his opinion was sought about Running Wild, so Francis Matthews had history with them. I know William Franklin appeared in one of the BBC shows. Anyway, everybody's good at being straight man to Morecambe and Wise. So the stock plot doesn't matter. In fact, this kind of stock plot is good because really that's all it is. There are goodies and baddies. 
yes, there are murders and things, but they're over the top. They're fantastical. It's 60 spy stuff. It's a very nice generic thing. You can have situations that have peril and comedy at the same time. So, no, The Intelligence Men, it's a good film. So Ergenary's autobiography of 1972 doesn't tend to dwell on these films a great deal. Their later autobiography does, and we'll come to that later on. But in 1972, basically, Eric Markham says, In show business, you can't afford a flop at any time, least of all when you're on top. So you can imagine how we felt when the intelligence men proved a critical disaster. The intelligence men reminded me of Bud Abbott and Luke Costello at their worst, said one review in The Sun. Sunday Express said, In the intelligence men, we have to watch the ruination of those two excellent comics, Morecambe and Wise, in an embarrassingly unfunny spy skit. The Observer called it a chaos of flat gags. And the people said, It has a few laughs, but is a good deal less funny than you'd think from two such masters of lunacy. But it wasn't a flop. If we're going to believe Wikipedia, I think they mentioned it was in the top 12 at UK box office in 1965. That's why another one was made. Hold that thought, because we might come back to that at some point in the future, i.e. we definitely will. So, the following year, where are we off to? That Riviera touch bothered me slightly. I think partially because all three films, it's goodies and baddies, there are secrets, there are people being shot. It'd be okay if the second film was... Morecambe and Wise are blacksmiths. <laughs> Morecambe and Wise are funeral directors. Morecambe and Wise are bakers. Morecambe and Wise are doing something that's nothing to do with goodies and baddies. They're just working towards an end and they're too silly to get it. Fine. When we're into intrigue, it's well, don't waste any time setting up the intrigue. That's one of the things I liked about the intelligence men. You don't have to explain espionage from the ground up. The baddies want to kill X and the Secret Service want to stop them. That's it. It's a perfect MacGuffin. That Riviera touch is all about criminals and smuggling and Morkun Wise are not in nearly every scene. They're in most scenes, but they're in this film a lot less than they were in The Intelligence Men because you have to keep stopping and say, what does the bad guy want and how is he going to get it? When we're watching this film, we just hit a certain point where you said, do you know what's going on? <laughs> And I confess I didn't. And having spent all this time, they then have to introduce a complication that feels like padding. So, for some reason, Morkman Wise are going on holiday. Uh, they were traffic wardens at the beginning of the film. They've embarrassed themselves as traffic wardens. So they're going on holiday to France, and they are tricked into staying in a spooky old house because criminals want them to smuggle things out. So I guess the idea is they stay in this house, we can stuff the diamonds or whatever they are into their luggage and then they'll be unwitting smugglers. And then for some reason they go to the casino and Eric wins a lot of money and the film goes off in a new direction. But it still doesn't feel rewarding. You were saying it feels like Laurel and Hardy at Fox. And I was saying it feels like the Marx Brothers at MGM. I can't remember which film it was, but there was definitely one where Groucho complains. They would test the film and it would do badly and the writers think that the audience aren't laughing because they haven't understood the plot. So they put in more scenes explaining the plot as if that would make it any funnier. And there's too much of that in this. Uh, another similarity I was thinking with 
those Law and Hardy films, the wartime films, is that you feel that they are bystanders in their own film. And none of these plots really involve Markham and Wise to any great degree. I mean, okay, the, the intelligence men, to an extent, is driven by themselves, but certainly that Riviera touch, it's just like they're in somebody else's film. Well, that's like we're saying about help, for example. Okay, the Beatles are there, but it might as well be anybody. I'm not really a big fan. You know when I say that I'm going to <laughs> do exactly what I said I'm not a big fan of? It can be too easy sometimes, and it can sometimes even be damaging to start boiling down plots into fairly obvious segments. Goals. So, what do Markham and Wise want? What are they doing? What end are they working towards? Now, in The Intelligence Men, they have to find out what the agents of Schlecht want to do and prevent them doing it. Morko and Wise have to do that. And even more so, they realise something, I think, before their superiors do. So Morko and Wise really have to save the day. They don't just turn over the information to their superiors. So Morko and Wise have goals in that film. That Riviera touch, Morko and Wise's goal is to have a holiday and then really not get done over by the baddies. But they're passive. If the bad guy's plan went wrong by itself, Mork and Wise would in their own eyes still have succeeded. And this sounds silly, like I'm taking it too seriously. Like, But no, you just have to have a little thing. And it, it doesn't have to be much. Like I said, right, Mork and Wise want to bake a cake for the Lord Mayor's birthday. <laughs> it's not much, but it's a thing. Mork and Wise want to put on a really good performance of Greek's Piano Concerto. Morkum and Wise want to pay tribute to Singing in the Rain. Flip back to Laurel and Hardy, okay? Laurel and Hardy want to deliver a piano. I'm not overdoing it, am I? No, I mean... Morkum and Wise should have a task that's set to them and they should repeatedly fail and maybe succeed in the end or fail massively in an amusing fashion so that we don't feel too bad. And in this, it's Morkum and Wise have to stay alive. <laughs> Also, a few people are shot in this. Bullet holes and blood. Thanks, guys. Now, here's the thing, because I wasn't going to introduce this as a source just yet, but it seems a pertinent point in which to do so. So, Mocker and Wise's second autobiography, published in 1981, contains details for the film that they wanted to make and never did. And from the relatively limited information we've gotten here, it does actually seem as if it was along the lines of what you were saying there. So, to quote Ernie, we were always telling the BBC we had an idea whereby all the big stars with whom we worked and the people who became good friends, like Robert Morley, Glenda Jackson, Vanessa Redgrave, Flora Robson, Andre Previn, would have done a little piece in it. We wanted Flora Robson to be the cleaning lady, Andre Previn to be the music director, Robert Morley the doorman at the front, and we would do a big star thing, but we could never get it off the ground. The idea would be along the lines of the flat routines in the shows. So to quote Eric, there's a story to it, with Ernie and I as Morgan and Wise, not as two performers who can't perform, but as two very good double-act comedians. It's based on my hobby of doing all those competitions in the newspapers, and I eventually win. The prize is a part in a film with a Hollywood star. It's a double prize, so Ernie would play the part of the wife. 
although he doesn't dress as a woman. Ernie says, The idea is we get somebody like Vincent Price and an American woman star who, of course, would fall in love with me so that we can get a stay on the States. I quite like that idea. I mean, just sort of merging those two together, the, the, the idea that you've got lots, first of all, you've got lots of faces, because that was my problem with the, the second and third films here, is that you didn't really have any faces in the second two. First one, yeah, there was lots of recognisable faces in it. But yeah, I like this idea where you've got face after face after face. And also the idea, it obviously depends on where that would have ended up as far as them going to the States and what have you. But the, the beginning of that idea of the two of them just sat in the flat cutting out competition coupons in the newspapers is quite sweet. And I think that's more along the lines of what you're thinking of. Well, I, I realised that what I just said might sound ridiculous in light of when we were talking about Hard Day's Night. And I said that Hard Day's Night the Beatles didn't have any big prize. Their prize was getting to the end of the day. But that's because the person who stands in the way of that, the antagonist, is a selfish old man who likes to stir it. <laughs> so more can wise go on holiday and want to have a nice holiday is fine. And the antagonist in that, there doesn't even need to be a particular antagonist. It can just be the weather, just sheer bad luck. Whereas in this, Morecambe Wise want to have a holiday. The antagonists are thieves and murderers. I think that's it. So Morecambe Wise's task and the things that stand between them and their task feel weirdly unbalanced. That Riviera touched is not really the story of what Morecambe and Wise want. It's the story of what the smugglers want. And Morecambe and Wise are in it, but they're not really driving it. We mentioned before about how there was a third hand writing this, a chap called Peter Blackmore, who was also credited as a writer on this film. And there were four people credited writing The Magnificent Two, and seems to be getting to the point where there's too many cooks. So The Magnificent Two, I've already forgotten. Let me actually, let me just start The Magnificent Two playing on my TV. Okay, whilst you're doing that, let's quote a little bit of Ernie. This is from Eric and Ernie. This is the first autobiography in 1972. By January 1966, we were into the fifth successful TV comedy series for ITV and we were going from success to success in variety and pantomime. But there had been in all two films, that Riviera Touch and The Magnificent Two, both like the first written by Hills and Green and panned even more mercilessly by the critics. The critics were right and we are not blaming Hills and Green. They had been called upon to produce a script based on a formula decided by a production committee. This was a hodgepodge of what had been found successful for other funny men in films for the past 40 years. The Intelligence Men doesn't start with Markham and Wise. It starts with this character, Major Cavendish, who dies. And then the message is sent to MI5. But then very quickly we see Ernie working at MI5. That Riviera Touch starts with Morecambe and Wise as a couple of traffic wardens. The Magnificent Two starts in a fictional town in a fictional Latin American banana republic. And it starts with men with guns waiting at a train station. And it takes a while for us to get to Morecambe and Wise. Not a great while, but I don't know. It just feels like a really bad setup. Again, it's not their story. My heart sank when this started, to be honest. As soon as I saw it, I thought, oh. I thought what, what, at what point? Immediately, as soon as it began. Because, okay, Riviera Touch. I said before about how I don't find that kind of supposedly glamorous location 
interesting. I find it very dull. Um, everybody in the background was sort of identical. But at least visually, okay, it's relatively sort of pleasant. As soon as this began, I thought, right, we're not going to get any domestic Markham wise at all. So we're not going to see anything about their background and what it was that possessed them to to fly out to this place to sell army dolls. That's what basically are. They're, they're selling like children's toys and what have you. But we're not going to see any of that. We're just going to be just dropped straight into this, wherever the hell this is supposed to be, with this civil war that we don't care anything about. These two sides that we haven't been introduced to. And we're just going to be stuck with it from beginning to end. So as soon as it began, I just thought, oh, boy. The stock plot situation feels significantly worse in this, and I don't know why, but it bothered me way more this time. I don't give a damn about this Civil War nonsense, whatever the hell was going on. No interest in it at all. Mark and Wise, why are you there? What are you doing there? Go home. Yeah, exactly. Get back to Black Hole or something. Let let me think this through. Get out of this place. Do you ever want to give up podcasting? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes. I think, am I just taking the joy out of things? Examining them? I'm not somebody who agrees with that whole idea that you shouldn't dissect jokes, but there's so much of it out there these days. Placing things in historical context is better than looking at the mechanics. However, all that being said, you can't take the joy out of The Magnificent Two. <laughs> so here's what I'm thinking. The intelligence men, Eric and Ernie, are pushing the plot. It is about them succeeding in something, and their story is the larger story. That Riviera Touch has the problem that their story is not the larger story. The smuggling plot overshadows them on holiday, but it is at least. Mock and Wise are on holiday. There will be opportunities for them to have some sort of domestic squabble and be gauche. The Magnificent Two... Well, for a start, okay, the the Latin American Banana Republic Revolution plot. The mistaken identity plot. Okay, can we start thinking of us? There's one, there's an Only Fools and Horses, isn't there? Where Del Boy looks like a gangster. Oh, Mommy Twice. Can we start thinking of any others? Is that going to be a more common thing than they all go on holiday? Oh, mistaken identity. Oh, there must be, there must be. Um... George and Mildred 2. Which, admittedly, I imagined. <laughs> it was going to have uh, Norman Ashley as Jeffrey Fourmile and also, what's his name, Trip. He'd come to visit, so... Oh, um, 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 our relations. Owen Hardy. Oh, but that's... They, they make films. Okay, that's a, a non-starter. I was thinking that somehow the extended special, the feature film or the long Christmas episode that we're going to keep f- coming across doubles... People will be tweeting us right now as we're saying this. I cannot think of any examples right now apart from the obvious one, the Dale Boy one. But no, people will be tweeting us right now. And we'll, what we'll do, we'll read them out next time, okay? Next show we record, we will read out the tweets. Because there'll be tons of them. There'll be loads of them. There's an episode of Doctor and Charge that's got about six Richard O'Sullivan's in it, for goodness sake. It just feels like a desperate idea. Three movies in and we're doing the double gets you in trouble. So yes, there's going to be a revolution in this place. He's not even a double, he's just got a similar hat and glasses. The guy who's going to lead the revolution is accidentally killed. Actually, is he accidentally killed? Is he killed by assassins or is it an accident? Now hang on, but what do you mean the guy in the train? Yes. Hold that thought there, because this is something that you picked up on with regard to Riviera Touch as well. The guy who looks like Eric, now I'm going back to Magnificent 2 now. So the guy who looks like Eric, 
right? He falls from the train to his death along with the, the police officer who's chasing him. And the reason that they fall out of the train is because Eric opened the door. Now, admittedly, he knows nothing of this. It's an accident. But still, that's the circumstances in which it happened. In Riviera Touch, someone's poisoned. No, it's intelligence men. Okay, so someone's poisoned because he drops this capsule in somebody's Because he trick. does what the bad guys want him to do. Exactly, and it goes to the wrong person, basically. Yeah, it yeah, goes to the wrong person, but he puts poison in somebody's glass, like he's asked. You were saying that shouldn't happen at Eric's hands. He He shouldn't be responsible for that. So I was thinking this with Magnificent 2. I was thinking, you know, he, he doesn't even know he's done it. He never finds out that he's done it. But still, he, it, it shouldn't fall to him. And yet the, the violence in this was just, it was outrageous. It was, it was way beyond anything humorous. I mentioned it in passing before. This but. has more deaths on screen than Robocop. That's not true. I just wanted to put the idea in your mind. It's that kind of level of thing. I've got it on TV now, and there's just people being machine gunned left, right, and center. And by the way, this has got a PG rating in the UK. And I think this is probably why. And that makes no sense. I mean, Markham Rice film having a PG rating? That's ridiculous. But fast forward 10 years. Are you being served? The movie. They go off to the Costa Blanca. Hey-ho, there is a revolution attempt, which is led by Glenn Houston. And there are gun battles going on in the conclusion to that film, including people being shot, you know, soldiers and what have you. But it's all done in such an over-the-top, ridiculous fashion that it doesn't leave you sort of feeling uneasy at any point. You know, you've got the staff all hiding under the tables and what have you, all that kind of thing, and hoisting Mrs. Slocum's Union Jack knickers to try and attract the, the, the locals' attention and say, British citizens don't fire at us, that kind of thing. There's nothing like that here. It's like all of this is going on around Marco and Wise, all this sort of just bloodshed and what have you. That's, that's not too strong a word, that's what it is. And you really, you, you feel like you've wandered into one of those god-awful three-hour epics that they used to show on Easter Monday afternoon. And it would be like this glorious depiction of the battle of whatever the hell, and it won 14 Oscars or, or, or whatever. Cartoon. Just, yeah, exactly. And you just think, oh, no, 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 don't give me this. Where's Disney time, for goodness sake? That's what this feels like. It's so out of place. It, it really, it, it's very jarring. We started rewriting it as we were watching it. Okay, you have to make a film about Latin American Revolution with Malcolm and Wise in the middle of it and their toy salesman. So let's have the revolutionaries and let's have the government forces, both sides, they're there waiting with their machine guns. And then we should have Malcolm and Wise do something that lets off a loud bang and for both sides to think the other side's won somehow. We'll make it slightly fantastical so that we've got the idea but it doesn't go ahead as planned. And then we'll just somehow have the mess up that happens. But that's all we need. We need something Mark and Wise do cause the situation not to be as bad. Not because that's what we need from Mark and Wise, but because who wants to watch a Mark and Wise film where people are machine gunned? Because it doesn't work as black comedy. I'm not sure Mark and Wise is all that suited, but I wouldn't like to say there's no way you could make a black comedy with Mark and Wise. Should we talk about Laurel and Hardy again? Please do. Who's, is it, I want to say Mr. Slater's Poultry Market, but maybe I'm getting him confused with Mr. Slater's Parrot. There's a Laurel and Hardy radio pilot, and it is grim. 
They are turkey farmers who are mistaken for hitmen. So we have a bit where they're asked, how do you do the job? And they're thinking <laughs> how you do your turkey farming. And said, well, Stanley holds the feet and I lop their heads off. They end up in a prison cell and there's a whole joke about how they haven't they haven't realised that the cell next to them is the condemned cell. I won't give away the joke, just in case you want to listen to it for yourself. <laughs> but there is a shadow of death hanging over that pile. It kind of works if you're in the mood for it. But no. Okay, The Magnificent Two. There's talk at one point of murdering children. And okay, one of them kicks Ernie, but even then... The one who kicks Ernie is Tyler Butterworth. Indeed. Uh, long story short, Eric ends up being the president of this Latin American Republic, but of course there's power behind the throne. He's just a puppet ruler on behalf of somebody else. And we have this scene where they're having a banquet and Ernie is tasting the food and he keeps tasting something for Eric and then just shaking his head. Now, okay, right, does that mean there's poison in it? That's a big story. Ernie, alert somebody. But no, he's not. There's just some faint idea in some writer's mind, right? Food tasters, those are a thing. Oh, wouldn't it be funny if Eric didn't get anything to eat? Wait, what has Ernie noticed? He's just denying Eric food. He does eventually approve something, which for other reasons Eric doesn't get to eat. But it's like, are you just being a jerk about it? Because otherwise it's like, somebody's poisoned this food. There's a murderer among us. Or is it just, no, you can't have that. You don't deserve soup. <laughs> well, this fits in with what Eddie Braven had said about when he was approached to be Malcolm Wise's writer, is that he didn't particularly like the ATV era Malcolm Wise because he felt that Ernie was too abrasive and Eric was too gormless. And so, you know, that's why he changed the characters when he started writing for them. So this uh, BBC4 thing, are we looking forward to it? <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. That I, wasn't I meant were, to be a leading were, question. No, I thought you were kidding. I thought you were going to tell me that they've, they've made a BBC4 biopic about the free films that they made for Rank in the 60s. <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, don't do this. No, but you saw that still. Why couldn't it be the, the same people as in Eric and Ernie? That worked. Here's a novel idea. Why can't they make some funny comedies or something? Could they do that? No, I think they could have made a nice sequel to Eric and Ernie, which is making lots of career-ending mistakes that are actually making them stronger and stronger without their realising it. They fall out with Lou Grade. They lose their writers. Eric has a heart attack. It keeps looking like the end of Morecambe and Wise, and we know it's getting them closer and closer to being Morecambe and Wise of legend. And it would be a way of finding out how things work, finding out the creative process. I have no problem with making biopics because it's a way of just looking at how things happen sometimes. And it can make you realise that it's not magic. It can actually break narratives that are too tidy. Is there any point in doing that, though? The thing is that's that Eric the, and That's Abby... the whole point. It's like, look, this is how it happened. It's not just nice things happening. This is actually coming out of career-risking mistakes. They didn't go, oh, we're, we're, we're made for life now. Nobody's under the impression that it, that it happened in a sort of magical way. Their, their story's been told very well. So every everything that you've just described there, you didn't have to look any of that up. 
there'd be stories to tell about aspects of their career. I mean, I, I would love to... Okay, well, that's what I mean. Yeah, but what is it to fall out with Lou Grade? What does that mean? We know what happened after that, but what did it feel like to be in that moment? The thing is, they're not going to do it like that, though, are they? Okay, everything you've But just you saw played. Eric and Ernie, and that didn't make any of the horrible mistakes the usual things did. Again, it showed how it all came together and how close it came to falling apart. Have you seen The Road to Coronation Street? No. It makes Granada in 1960 look like a very exciting place to be. I always assumed that it would be. Yeah, but imagine that just having that communicated to you, being able to watch it. So something that makes Television Centre, or I guess suppose maybe it would have been the TV theatre, feel like that. Just something to communicate what it was like in a less neat and tidy fashion. This is about two people ascending, but they do not know they are ascending. Just getting some of the feelings across them, there are a few points when they're probably head in hands over moments which are taught to us as glorious. Biopics are fine. It's when a biopic reinforces the laziest way of telling the narrative. Or, of course, the real story. Everybody who ever told a joke was self-loathing. Still be more fun than The Magnificent too. So to return to Eric and Ari, the autobiography. It all had to be done within a penny-pinching budget. While we were making The Magnificent 2, a volcano was being built for a James Bond film, You Only Live Twice. The volcano cost £250,000, which was more than the entire budget for our film. All we got out of our films was a fee. In addition, we were promised we would become millionaires out of the profits. I'm not saying the films didn't make money. I am told they did, but we didn't receive any of it. And that was written just five years after the, the films were completed. If we then fast forward to 1981, there's something quite intriguing going on here. You get the impression that as time has gone past, that, that maybe this has sort of rankled a little bit. Ernie says, In the 60s, when we made the rank films, our lawyers weren't as good as those of other people. We thought the notion of us making movies was a smashing idea, but the film companies had batches of lawyers who had drawn up contracts that for them were watertight. At that time, we were earning a lot of money, most of which was going to go in tax, and we were looking for a spread of earnings. That's a very well-known phrase, but a dangerous one. They just don't spread very far. We signed a contract for a certain amount of money, and the rest was on a percentage basis. That was called deferred payments. We had a percentage of the box office as well as of the profits, but the makers said that the films never made any profit. We don't think we ever got a proper return, particularly since the films have been on television where we're big stars. In fact, we've never seen anything at all from television sales of our pictures. Eric adds, even if the cinemas were not packed, we believe the movies made enough cash. Now, Ernie then draws an analogy with theatre houses, for example, and how easy it is to be able to work out just looking at a house you know, how much money's been taken and so on. And then adds, don't forget the BBC paid a lot of money to run those films. Money's changing hands and it ain't coming our way. Eric draws a line under this and says, we know those films were too static for us, but let's face facts. They weren't that funny. We must take the blame as well. The director would say, run down that corridor and fall down. That always gets a laugh, but it never did with us. Ernie says, the pictures were all the same. We were caught up in something that was bigger than us that wasn't under our control. One of the problems was due to the fact that there was no audience. 
We were talking into a void all the time. It was too big for us. One thing we should throw in, by the way, Magnificent 2 has a fourth writer on hand. So we still have, obviously, Sid and Dick. We've got Peter Blackmore, who was on that Riviera Touch. And then we also have Michael Pertwee as well. And Michael Pertwee is the writer of Digby, the biggest dog in the world. And also, he is the writer of Don't Just Lie There, Say Something, which is the Brian Ricks, Leslie Phillips fart, which is brilliant. Yeah, I really like that film. So it's a real oddity how in all of these, you've got talented people across the board. And there's something about the mix here that just isn't doing it. It just isn't working. It would have been lovely to see Mark and Wise have a sort of film entirely on their own terms. In a way, some of the long-form sketches in the BBC years are like little sort of mini plays in of themselves. I mean, it would take some doing, but you could probably work purely with the flat sketches of the BBC years and actually assemble a really good little 90-minute compilation of them. wouldn't necessarily have the tightest of plots, obviously, because it wasn't written like that, but it would be nice and sort of meandering in its own sort of way. So neat and tidy narratives. They went to Thames. They weren't very good. And they were getting old and they made Night Train for Murder and Night Train for Murder was rubbish and it was shown during children's programmes at the end. There's a few things to take apart here. Yeah, like all of it. As they themselves said, part of the reason that they switched to commercial TV was the, the promise of, of making a film. Thames TV had their subsidiary, Euston Films, and at that time... BBC Films wasn't a thing, so it wasn't something that they could really compete on. And it's probably, this might be cynical, but I don't think this is too fanciful. I suspect that the film itself would have been something, it would have been a carrot that Thames dangled to get Morecambe Wise. But I don't really think that Thames necessarily had much interest in making a film with Morecambe Wise. I think Thames wanted the Morecambe Wise show, which is of course what they got. And the film takes quite some time to come to fruition and eventually happens in 1983 is when the film is made. And unusually, it is written by Mock and Wise themselves, along with Joe McGrath, director of Magic Christian. So the first thing, Mock and Wise were getting old. I can see that in some of the Thames shows. There are some Thames shows where Eric looks quite frail. Night Train to Murder is not one of them. There is the bit when they're on stage and the stage makeup makes them look a bit old, but that's just stage makeup. They look fine. Their voices are fine. Their presence is fine. There's no sense that this is a couple of sad old men at the ends of their careers. It does have two problems. It's slightly too slow and its gags are weak. And yet, you can enjoy this, or at least I did. There's still some warmth running through it. It's not the worst way of saying goodbye to Morecambe and Wise. So they're playing it as stage performers. It's set in 1946, and we get to see them backstage in an old variety theatre. And they're playing that very, very comfortably, because they know very well what it's like to be backstage in a variety theatre. So something here works, but of course... This is called Morecambe and Wise at the movies, not the films, because this is all shot on videotape. Well, just to clarify one point there, I think there was an owl on film at one point in the in the film, so <laughs> I think that actually qualifies it as a film then. Well, it was better integrated than the stock footage in The Magnificent 2. <laughs> not even sure that was in colour. <laughs> but it doesn't have the look of like a VT sitcom. 
It looks to have been shot videotaped single camera. So scenes seem to run a little bit too slow. Like everybody's had to warm up again at the beginning of every shot. I don't doubt you could edit in a pacey fashion on videotape by 1983, but it hasn't happened here. Yeah, there, there are scenes where you've got basically everybody is in the shot at the same time. And there are long pauses between individual bits of dialogue and what have you. And you think sort of close-ups, cutaways and what have you would just speed this up a little bit. Some people say, well, the videotape makes it look cheap. I like videotape. It has its place. I quite like things like how we used to live. But this is meant to be a salute to the silver screen. They name a bunch of film stars at the beginning. The only thing is, is that if this had been made by Euston Films, I'm not sure it would look any better. Because this would, it would have been shot 16. Maybe Super 16, I'm not sure if that was being used. If this had looked like Minder, I still think it would have failed to convey what Mock and Wise are wanting to convey. Eric Markham Unseen, The Lost Diaries, Jokes and Photographs, edited by William Cook, makes reference to Eric and Ernie embarked on a long-awaited movie for Thames film subsidiary Euston Films, supposedly the reason they'd left the BBC in the first place. However, Euston Films barely bore comparison with the rank organisation, let alone any of the American studios that Ernie still pined for. It had been set up to make the first British TV movies, and though it did that job very well, it was hardly Pinewood, let alone Hollywood. Really, for this to be the film that Mock and Wise want, it'd have to be shot on black and white silver nitrate 35. Now, there's a bit of an oddity going on here, because the DVD of this actually does not contain any copyright message. doesn't have a menu. It just <laughs> starts. And when the film ends, it goes right back to the beginning. <laughs> because it assumes that you want to watch it again. I don't think it even has chapter points. I'm just thinking that, you know, when the worst list of extras is interactive menus. I haven't looked. Maybe there is a list of extras on the back, like sturdy case, <laughs> full colour cover. <laughs> <laughs> Have we got any direct words from Eric and Ernie about it? We do, we do. Hang on a second. Because one thing, why I found this more watchable than two of the three rank films is they do at least seem to be enjoying being there i'm thinking one thing dragging down the magnificent two and probably that riviera touch is they know they're not working to their best effect so this is from eric Mockham unseen edited by william cook eric and Ernie's movie night train to murder didn't sound too bad on paper a creepy comic caper that harked back to the saturday morning movies of their youth but the result was something else it was dreadful says Joan Morecambe. I think that did break Eric's heart. He was given the video to watch and he sat hypnotised. Couldn't believe what he was watching. He couldn't believe that anything could be so bad. He wanted it buried, which he can't do. They'd spent a lot of money on it, but he could not believe that they could have got it so wrong. As William Cook then adds, it was hard to believe that they'd left the BBC and Ernest Maxson and Eddie Braben for this. Eric was so unhappy with the movie he wanted Thames to screen it during children's hour, or ideally in the middle of the night. Mercifully, transmission was postponed for the time being. IMDb actually gives us 5.7 out of 10, which I would say is, is a fair rating, to be honest. I don't think this is as bad as received sort of wisdom sort of makes out. Now, that, that quotation there from John Markham obviously is stark, and obviously that the film itself did not meet Markham Wise's own standards. I mean, I've seen people actually draw comparisons with Atoll K, for goodness sake. Wow. That's, that's not on. It's nowhere near in that sphere. 
Eric was hypercritical, though, of himself. Right, so the opposite end of what we're dealing with here is the Greek piano concerto with André Previn. Up until the last minute, Eric was thinking that maybe they should abandon that. Not abandon it entirely, but abandon the whole Previn thing. And of course, the way this is made, you can't hear the laughter. But had Eric lived to see it televised, I don't know. Maybe he would have realised it's not as utterly dreadful as he seemed to think it is. The whole problem with it is the gags are feeble. That's its only problem. <laughs> Even though this is a murder mystery, the murders are in a fantastic manner. I don't think Eric and Ernie cause any of them. <laughs> and their interplay is still there. So this is deserving of not a massive re-examination, but at least a slightly different reputation. You're getting the same Morecambe Wise that you get in Sweeney, for example. You're, you're getting the stage Morecambe Wise. Effectively, it's as if they had been on the stage but sort of 40 years later in life, so to speak. It fits in entirely with the characters that they've built up and the flat sketches and so on when they're talking about the people they've performed with in the, back in the old days of the music halls and so on. And so this doesn't feel at all like they're fish out of water. There's no silly nonsense going on with finding themselves caught up in the middle of a civil war or anything like that. And there's nice bits, Roger Brearley's character having this permanent reverb on his voice. And of course, actually, hey, we're talking about black comedy. There's a black joke that works. That's him. That's Big Jim. <laughs> I know that it's absurd and it doesn't go anywhere, but I do like that little piece right in the middle of the film with the false banana. It's just it's just there. They've got this prop banana that you can unzip and has another banana inside it and then it eventually finds its way into a fruit bowl. And this little scene just plays out for about 30 seconds. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere, but it's just perfect in its own little right. It's so salvageable. <laughs> That's one of the annoying things. They could have maybe just done some inserts. It needs a gag man to come in and punch it up. You're not sitting there with your jaw open and your hand over your eyes. Again, do you think it fits too well in with the lazy narrative idea that all the great stars either end at the top or the bottom? That people think that they need their Atoll care, their love, happy, their sin of Harold Diddlebock. As far as Morecambe Wise is concerned, there is a decline in as much as the the peak that they reached with the BBC was absolutely stratospheric. So there was no way that they were ever going to achieve half the available viewing audience as they did at Christmas 77. And the same goes for Mike Yarwood as well. There's no way that they were going to be able to repeat that feat. They wouldn't have been able to repeat that feat probably even if they'd stayed at the BBC. This is a thing. This is sometimes portrayed as always oh, a dreadful mistake, switching to the opposition and so on. And it's a quotation which I think is in Graham McCann's book. I think this is advice that Max Miller had given to them. And he'd said, look, you know, when you get to the top in show business, there's only one direction you can go when it isn't up. And so there's, there's going to be a point. I mean, I guess it happens with every performer's career. When you then look back on it, there's going to be a point at which they've peaked. I suspect that the trouble, if that's how you want to phrase it in the case of Morgan Wise, is because that peak was so visible. You know, just that, that staggering figure, half the population was watching them on that night. 
and that entered the the public domain at the time as well. So people were aware within a matter of a couple of weeks or so that those were the viewing figures for that night. So I, I think that because that happened in their lifetime, so to speak, that when then people compare the following year's Christmas show, and obviously it doesn't get quite the viewing figures that the previous one did and so on. Yeah, that's then set a course, that's set a a narrative there and then. Whereas in the case of most performers, I suspect that they're sort of the highs and their lows, that they tend to come as a result of appraisals after their time. And you can draw parallels with Lauren Hardy as well, because their obvious sort of decline in terms of the quality of their films when they switch to Fox and MGM is apparent on screen. And there were all performers who have gone on for whatever reason to make some sort of career change. I mean, obviously people talk about Tony Hancock shedding himself of his company of performers and then shedding themselves of Galton Simpson and so on. Yet you can sort of point to things like that. But down does not necessarily mean all the way down. And I think people, office boars, you know, our enemies... They're the people who like to make the big sweeping generalizations. I've seen Michael Gray talking about the last series of the goodies. Well, they were past their best. We've talked about that last series of the goodies. It has its problems, but it's not that their talents have dimmed. There just seems to be a wobble where they're trying to reassess their place in the comedic landscape. And so it's more hit and miss. It's also in that particular, I'm not, not suggesting that this is the motivation for saying that, but there is also something slightly convenient about that line being peddled when it comes to the goodies, considering the LWT themselves over-committed. They didn't realise how expensive those shows were until they started making them. So it sort of fits some people's narratives in a way to actually say that. So Night Train to Murder, I, I mean, I, I had actually seen it before, but it's perfectly pleasant. And also, yeah, let's put that to bed, that the idea that it went out in the middle of the afternoon. It did not. It went out half past eight at night on the 4th of January 1985, which, of course, was posthumously uh, Eddie Morecambe having died in May of 84. I mean, it's been available on video and DVD for years and years and still is, and it will still be enjoyed. It's a perfectly harmless little film, and it's the kind of thing that it doesn't tend to get shown on TV a great deal, I suspect, because... As we've established, despite you know the perfectly valid results of our poll, it's not actually technically a big screen feature. So it doesn't get wrapped up in those rank film rights. Whereas you see things like you know the free rank films, you see them turn up on like film four, for example, quite often. But it's fine. I think the fact that people talk about it so much is because it's more wise, basically. And there's plenty of other instances of comedians perhaps doing something slightly different or the ordinary or whatever it is and they don't get the same level of scrutiny. Speaking of which, when are we going to do The Boys in Blue? Yes, it's fine. It's on the list. We'll never get around to it. (laughs) All the Jeffa Cakes of Proust slots for next year are filled now. It's going to cause a lot of heartache to start taking things out. Had they been filled before I suggested doing the Boys in Blue, have you just decided that now? Um, They were filled earlier this afternoon (laughs) before we started recording. Is this the same as Rank saying, yeah, those films never actually turned a profit, so sorry about that. No, no, I thought... Is there any evidence for this? That's the last one in place for next year. And then you've just suggested the Boys in Blue. 
<laughs> it's like, no, that goes on the 2019 list. The 31st of February recording. Okay, let's have a production meeting right here, right now, in front of everybody. Shall we throw away what we're going to talk about next week and do the boys in blue instead? Yeah, go on then. Okay, we'll do that. So next week, because we've fallen into a weekly sequence because we messed up our scheduling. Next week, here on Jeff Gigs Proust, we'll be watching Cannon and Ball in The Boys in Blue. Hey, I've got an idea. Boys in Blue is a remake of a Will Hay film. Yeah, let's, let's do watch them both. Yeah, let's cool. do them both. Yeah. Oh, I. And if you do have anything for us at all, like, for example, if you've got a big old list of suggestions of shows in which you get doppelgangers, Mammy Twice aside, let us know. Please tweet us. We're at Jaffas for Proust. You can find us on Facebook, rather confusingly, as The Sitcom Club, but it all appears Jaffa Kicks for Proust. And you can also email us, again, confusingly, feedback at sitcomclub.com. And you can find all of our previous shows and all manner of other shows as well, for that matter, at podnose.com. Any road up. We'll be back next Friday. Tilt. Mwah! And this is Gary signing off and saying this has been Jaffa Kicks for Proust.